person. And since I knew both of those voices very well, um, I was finally able to um, satisfy, um, you know, my, my own, my, it put an end to it for me. A lot of people still believe very strongly in the existence of this boy. Um, both his editor, uh, David Groff at Crown Books, and his agent, Wendy Wilde, a very distinguished New York agent, have yet to disavow uh, this author. And uh, a former AIDS counselor that the boy had, a man named Jack Godby, um, told ABC at 2020 that um, he speaks to the kid all the time, although, of course, he's not a kid anymore. He's 28 years old, supposedly. Even though he had just six months to live years ago. Yes, exactly. Had AIDS and one leg had been amputated. He had um, uh, tertiary syphilis, um, a list of ailments that was absolutely horrifying. But, but the tough thing is, if you invent a very imaginary person, you have to keep them alive because, um, you know, death requires a certificate. Certification, sure, sure. So in your mind, it's it's a closed case. Never existed. There's there's no glimmer of hope in your head that maybe. No, I don't. I certainly don't have hope around it because I really never. Uh, unlike Gabriel Noon, the character in the Night Listener, I was not nearly uh, as obsessive about hanging on to this mythology. Um, as soon as Terry mentioned the possibility that it might be this same person, my um, storyteller's imagination took over, and I was okay. far more excited by this real-life mystery story that was happening to me than, uh, than uh, obsessed with the notion of uh, this wonder child, this, this uh, sort of Christ figure in some ways that uh, so many other people got involved with. So were you writing the book while you continued to have conversations with him, her? Well, I, I contracted for the book while I was still having conversations. I had pitched the story to both my British um, and American publishers and, uh, and was actually receiving, uh, you know, had already received my advance and found myself completely hung up because I realized if I wrote the novel, then I would be tipping off the person on the other end of the line that I doubted his existence. And I figured if there was even a 3% chance that this child existed, I didn't want to be in a position of doubting um, the story of a victim of child abuse. Sure. Because, of course, we all know that that's the toughest part for kids to come forward and say that this has happened. Uh, that, of course, is a very clever manipulation on the part of the person who's pulling off the hoax because you're put in the position of, uh, of looking like you doubt all child abuse if you doubt this child. And it presents a, a reasonable explanation for a lot of the secrecy and the... That's correct. That's exactly right. In fact, when when people couldn't find any records of this child's existence or his trial or the crimes that were committed against him, the response was that his name had been changed in order to protect his identity and hide him from a ring of pederasts who might be still looking for him. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of rabbit hole that people fall into, and uh, some don't ever get out. I was able to climb out by way of fiction. It was a very useful tool for me. And in fact, the novel itself helped to uh, flush out other people who'd had similar experiences. They came up to me in 2000 when I was on tour and said, I think I know who you're writing about. Oh, no At that kidding. point, I was still uh, maintaining... Uh, the the notion that this was strictly fiction and uh, contained no um, 
autobiographical truth. Whenever that question came up, I generally avoided it and fell back on what was, in fact, the truth, that this is a fictitious story. Uh, but I was afraid that I, there might be a lawsuit forthcoming if, uh, if, such a, if the child did prove to exist. Sure. So what happens when the, the movie opens in the beginning of August and you get a phone call in the middle or late August and, and you recognize the voice? <laughs> Could it You're happen? You're a wicked woman, Beth. <laughs> <laughs> You've just made the hair on my arm stand up. <laughs> uh, in fact, we think that she may have contacted uh, both Robin Williams and Tony Collette. Oh, no uh, kidding. On the set of the film. They received uh, notes that were... Um, obviously from the same person, although they were signed with different names. And the handwriting was quite similar to the one that I used to see whenever I got written communications from either Vicky or Tony. No kidding. And what did she say to them? It was very friendly, saying, I can't wait to see what you do with this role. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I suspect that uh, that she can't wait to see what is done with that role because in some way she's had achieved a, uh, a degree of attention and immortality that uh, she might not have had before. Do you think that's what she was after? I think that there's a pathology behind this kind of behavior. Uh, there is, in fact, a, a disorder called a factitious disorder that's a branch of the, the Munchausen's family uh -huh. um, that... In Munchausen's by proxy, people poison their own children in order to get sympathy. In this case, there is no kid, um, but the sympathy is available in, in, in great amounts. Right. Uh, and uh, I've had, I had a brief chat with the leading expert on it in the country, and he said that it's far more widespread than, than people know. In fact, he says there's an enormous number of HIV cases reported that are non-existent because people simply want the sympathy that they think might be coming to them if if they were seen to be, um, uh, you know, infected with the virus. Sure. Wow. Interesting. So let's talk about the movie a little bit. Have you been very involved in creating the movie? I was one of the screenwriters. Uh, another screenwriter was Terry Anderson, the ex-partner who pointed out the discrepancy in the first place. Okay. And uh, the movie also, as well as the novel, of course, involves my breakup with Terry. Right. The two things did not happen concurrently in real life. That was uh, artistic license. Uh, mm -hmm. That was an additional um, stress that I placed on our hero in order to make him behave more uh, in a more extreme fashion. The third screenwriter was Patrick Stetner, the, the director, who came in and did a revision after we worked on it and made it more active, made it more um, thrillerish, if you will. Well, I was thinking as I was reading and listening to it that it would be a real challenge to take a storyline that involves so much of, of conversation over the telephone and conversation with a figure that maybe the director doesn't want to actually show and wondering how you turn that into a movie. How do you turn that into well, a visual experience? Well, those are the experience? two dilemmas. First of all, uh, as you pointed out very wisely, movies that are all about phone calls aren't especially compelling. And uh, secondly, if Whereas you can have phone calls in a novel and the reader is able to invent the looks of the person on the other end of the line, you can't do that in a film. If you don't show the person on the other end of the line, they're going to immediately become suspicious. Right. So we had to find a place somewhere in between. Uh, and Patrick, I think, had a very clever way of uh, representing that. We do actually see the child in the film, or we see him as Gabriel imagines him. Okay, okay. 
and um, and likewise the, the the mother. They are quite something else when he actually meets them. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and he actually, uh, Patrick Stetner, the director, actually did a very clever thing where he took items from Gabriel's home and placed them in the background of the the boy's uh, his imagined version of the boy's house as a way of saying almost subliminally in fact i think probably mm-hmm. completely subliminally that um he had constructed this out of fragments of his own imagination right oh interesting all right we all do that i mean i'm uh, you and i have never met and and i'm already trying to figure out what you look like uh, drop dead gorgeous. That's what I look yeah, like. There you Absolutely. Go. Well, that's what I was. That's what I was banking on. <laughs> and I, <laughs> now you're supposed to tell me the same thing. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and I've seen pictures of you, so I know it's true. <laughs> All right. So lots of people fantasize about having a movie made about them, or in which they're a character, and they fantasize about who would play them in the movie. Was mm-hmm. Robin Williams the person you always imagined would play you? Well, um, let's put it this way. Um, physically, no, but he was he was really my first choice for the role because, um, well, Patrick Stetner, our director, said, Robin looks like a guy who might love a little too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the quality that we needed for that character, for Gabriel. And I must say, if, if, uh, if we're measuring someone by his heart and his mind, it would be very nice to be mistaken for Robin Williams because he has... Um, both great intelligence and and great compassion. Um, he's quite a heroic figure in my eyes. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And it was uh, it was lovely to spend time with him on the set because he would turn from doing these absolutely subtle, serious, dramatic scenes back into the Robin Williams <laughs> <laughs> we all know and love. To-